Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with department store elf Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we explore the many faces of ethics in quantitative methodology, particularly as related to issues that arise in the day-to-day decisions we all make in our research lives. In that spirit, Quantitude has an ethical obligation to warn listeners that we also discuss speedometers, rushing and dragging, shoplifting, calling me Shirley, asteroids versus pinball, apple pie, beneficence and non-malfeasance playing tonight at the cat's cradle, forgetting things are illegal, stringing barbed wire, dotting T's and crossing I's, and horse fighting. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So I was on my thinking log yesterday. Mm. As you are aware, I have various running trails, one of which involves a thinking log and one of which involves a thinking rock. Yes. Which... Totally different. Are totally different. And I was thinking about today's episode. Mm -hmm. And there's not an obvious laugh out loud discussion of ethical violations. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I was pondering. Okay. That other people would find funny. Oh, okay. We've gotten some mileage out of talking about the parent-child thing of Mm. what are things you don't want to be and what are things you're trying to model for your kids. And I thought maybe one entry point would be, how is it in a day-to-day way you model ethical behavior for your children, Uh but more apropos to our conversation, or not? Uh (laughs) Discuss. And when you say when you do this, you mean the royal you. You don't mean me specifically, right? I mean you specifically. (laughs) I have been in your house. Uh Uh-huh, yes. I have watched family conversations. Hmm. I have watched your behavior. Yeah. There must be a pithy anecdote you have in trying to be an ethical person. I would imagine that one day I'm going to look back and see some grand unethical thing that I did in front of my children, or they will remind me of it on my deathbed. You won't know who they are, so it's going to be fine. Nurse! Who is that? (laughs) I mean, I know that I do a lot of little things that they might look askance at, right? So we might be sitting on the couch watching a family movie, and maybe it's a feel-good movie, and at the end of it... Goldie might say, oh, that was such a great movie. Jenny, I'm sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. And I'll go, oh, that was so nice. And Quinn will lean back out of her view and shake his head and go, what? What are you saying? That was terrible. You know, and he's mouthing these things. I'm shaking him off. I'm shaking him off. Nope, nope. That was family time. And I know that because I have a year and a half difference between the boys, there have been times when Tate might have shown me a picture and said, don't you think this is a cool drawing? And I'll go, that is an amazing car that you drew. And Quinn will look at me with eyes that can only say, that is the crappiest car drawing I've ever seen. How about you? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the little day-to-day stuff. The girls would sit in the back seat when they were younger and I would drive. And I have a very loose commitment to speed limits. <laughs> I see them as more suggestions. I could wallpaper my office with speeding citations over a 40-year period. Uh-huh. At one point when they started understanding how a car operated, the girls would say, Dad, you're speeding. And I would say... No, sweetie. I said a speedometer is designed to look straight onto it, and you're looking at it at an angle. And they would say, oh, oh, okay. And then I was so proud of them because at one point one of the girls said, Daddy, you're speeding. I said, no, it's the angle. And there was a long pause, and she said, no, it isn't. (laughs) And I was like, that's my girl. You framed it as a lesson, didn't you? Exactly. I was like, yes, more dendrites have sprouted. Uh Of course it's not the damn angle. Think it through. Come on. Good for you. Good for you. Another little one was recently, I was on the phone to my mom, and I was in the living room by myself, and I covered up the phone, and I said, what's that? Okay, sweetie, I'll be there in a minute. And then I said, I'm sorry, mom, I gotta go. (laughs) And I was like, yep, I'll call next week. Love you too. And I clicked it off. And in a dark room, a voice behind me said, you know, Annie and I are going to be doing that to you in 30 years. (laughs) But one is also 
your fault. Oh, <laughs> only one. Unambiguously <laughs> your fault. You recommended the movie Whiplash. Yeah, I did. <laughs> we watched it as a family. Friday night, we have pizza and movie night. For those of you who have not seen Whiplash, it's a brilliant movie. It's brilliantly acted. There's a small amount of emotional abuse. But it's toward maintaining high expectations and bringing the best out of people. Exactly. And the credits ran at the end of the movie, and I just started gushing about the movie and how amazing <laughs> it was. And I turn, and there are six appalled eyes looking at me. <laughs> and so that one is your fault. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, look at me. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Uh, rushing. So you do know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that one I can hang on you. <laughs> I got a text from you basically like three minutes after the movie ended that said something like, you knew that that wasn't going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote back, I didn't tell you to watch it with your family. <laughs> But that notion that as parents, we are role models mm -hmm. for not only the big ticket stuff, right? The big ticket stuff is easy. It's the day-to-day -day stuff. And that's what I want to talk about today, which is how does ethics apply to quantitative methods? Hmm. The day-to-day -day stuff and the stuff that we model for our students. How do we behave in a way that fosters the ethics and morality of our quantitative endeavor? And a first reaction from someone might be that it doesn't seem to apply very well. But I think the more you dig into it and the more you reflect on it, there really are so many places where ethics is directly relevant for things that we do. And that might be fun to unpack. I still think that it's kind of fun just to mention the big stuff. There's so many great tales of things. They read like movie scripts. Surely you have some favorite examples of giant things that have happened, right? Ethical things. I do. And quit calling me Shirley. <laughs> I won't deceive you, Mr. Stryker. We're running out of time. Shirley, there must be something you can do. I'm doing everything I can. Now stop calling me Shirley. I gave you that one. <laughs> Don't take it away from me, dude! It's the little things, as they say in Zombieland. But today, a Vortex 6 Eater V8, a box full of hollow points, and Lord willing, a Twinkie. Gotta enjoy the little things. Does ethics apply to quantitative methodology? I have interacted with multiple people who have doubled down and gone to the trenches in saying that ethics does not apply to quantitative methods. Mm -hmm. Not in the simple stuff, right? Is yes, don't fake data. Yes, don't do these awful, obvious things. But if you're not working with human subjects or if you're working with de-identified data, that those ethical principles don't apply. I vehemently disagree with that. Mm -hmm. And I think what the problem is, is when a lot of people think about ethics, you think about things like informed consent, about yeah. debriefing, about deception, about yeah. balancing harm from good, about all of those things. And absolutely, those are critically important to everything that we do. I would argue you can have an unethical computer simulation. No argument here. I completely agree with that. That might be a fun thing to circle back to if we can. Pick a who's your favorite big ticket quantitative example of unethical behavior. Yeah, I would think about Fisher. Fisher took really? to... Really? No, 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 Wait. no, no. No, please understand. Fisher was the one who took someone else to task. Oh, cool. You were yeah. going to take away no, one no, of no. my heroes. No. <laughs> I'm going to go to my thinking log while you tell the story. Okay. <laughs> because that was interesting. I was going to be really upset. So are you upset when I tell you by all accounts Fisher was an asshole? Oh, no. That's totally cool. <laughs> okay. Common knowledge. Did you not uh, hear the whiplash story <laughs> that I just told? So you do know the difference. That's right. He brought the best out in Rao. Um, <laughs> okay. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. 
<laughs> Mendel, who basically laid out the foundations of a lot of heredity and how you know plants pass on and dominant and recessive and all of that kind of stuff, Fisher just ripped him a new one. Fisher, I mean, waded into a paper in German and pulled out basically the gist of which is BS, not on the heredity stuff, mm -hmm. but on the work that was done and the reporting. And I pulled out some quotes from a paper that Fisher wrote in 36 or something specifically on this. Here are some of the quotes. It can be shown that Mendel left unaccounted or at least unpublished far more material than appears in his paper. Hmm. Mendel is taking excessive and unnecessary liberties with the facts. There can be no doubt that the data from later years of the experiments have been biased strongly in the direction of agreement with expectation. And here we go. The data of most, if not all, of the experiments have been falsified so as to agree closely with Mendel's expectations. And the thing that I love that Fisher did is he went back and he reanalyzed Mendel's data and found that they were too good. Almost all the chi-square tests we do are at the high end of the distribution, right? They're one-tailed tests that go out there to see whether or not we reject things. But we forget there's another end of the chi-square distribution. There's that end where things fit unusually closely. And Fisher said everything that Mendel did was so close to expectations that it was way too close. You know what I loved is in the reading of the quotes as Agatha Christie would have been proud. <laughs> the very innocuous beginning and mm -hmm. that ended with the five-finger death punch, as right. we learned in a prior episode. That's right. Thank you for returning Fisher, even in his holdum, mm -hmm. to at least an ethically guided asshole. Mm -hmm. Ergo, see whiplash. <laughs> the obvious one, Cyril Burt, early mm -hmm. 20th century. He's kind of the poster child yeah. for using quantitative methodology in unethical ways. He was an educational psychologist, geneticist, studied the heritability of intelligence, he had correlations between monozygotic and dizygotic twins and their intelligence. And it became very clear later that these had been faked, that they were equal to the third decimal point. This book has come up before in our discussions, but The Mismeasure of Man mm -hmm. by Stephen Jay Gould, which is a brilliant book and I highly recommend it. He has a chapter in there called The Real Error of Cyril Burt. And it's really quite brilliant. Because what Gould argues, the faking of data was the least of Burt's problems. Mm -hmm. The real error was his reification of intelligence as this thing that can be measured and transmitted genetically. That's a, an easy one. Um, you know, one that's interesting, I find like a lot when talking to students, it's, well, those things used to happen. But this is a, a real thing that's happening every day. Yeah, I sit on our campus board as what's called a research integrity officer. And we interact routinely with NIH and other national agencies. And the things that go on in a variety of fields, and I'm not speaking about my own institution. I'm just saying that we are trained about things to be aware of. The things that go on are crazy. The image banks that people have of gene sequences that they use as clip art to splice together to create results that they need for a particular study. There are examples that just go on and on where you cannot fathom the things that people do, just do more smartly, maybe, <laughs> maybe than they used to do. That's the old joke, right, is Burt could have gotten away with it. Right. Don't give the correlation to three decimal points. It'd be so easy to get away with it if you just put some sampling variability in. Yeah. Do you mind we're only a few minutes in, but a tie back to Catholicism because I see that <laughs> as a foundation here. I've got another holy trinity when it comes wow. to thinking about these things. We got the big ticket stuff. That's obvious. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. The second is, oh, I would never fake data but you move into the p-hacking, the deleting outliers until you find an effect, the harking. You look at modification indices and build a model and then say that's the one you believe the whole time. Mm -hmm. So there's some volitional misuse of statistics. You're not faking data, but questionable research practices. Mm -hmm. Researcher degrees of freedom. Researcher degrees of freedom. 
I want to drill into the third level, mm-hmm. which is the day-to-day stuff. The pretending your daughter needs help with homework <laughs> to get the heck off the phone with your mom's stuff. <laughs> the stuff that you say, we did not do a multiple group factor analysis to examine invariance with respect to gender because that was beyond the scope of the analysis here. Future research will do well to consider that. Is that a future directions or is there an ethical obligation Mm -hmm. to examine that non-invariance here and now? That's the stuff I'd like to puzzle through. I think that's an important thing to get at and to make very plain. These are issues of ethics. And I know that a number of years ago, you had a couple of colleagues who did a book around this particular issue. Yes. And this is a wonderful book and we will post in Twitter Okay, I'll clarify. Greg will post in Twitter (laughs) the link to this. But Abigail Panter and Sonia Sturba edited a handbook of ethics and quantitative methodology. Mm -hmm. And it is an absolutely wonderful book. And Greg and I could not recommend this more highly. Sonia's at Vanderbilt. She's the director of their quantitative psychology program. They have built a wonderful quantitative psych program there at Vanderbilt. Abigail, I am honored to count as a dear friend. She and I go back almost 25 years. She's a faculty here at Carolina in the quant psych program, but she has moved into administration and is now senior associate dean for undergraduate education here at UNC. This book is based on what I think you and I are talking about is this day-to-day stuff. You could write an edited handbook on don't fake correlations. It's a nice, (laughs) concise book. It's one sentence. Don't be an idiot. This one is the day-to-day thing. So I have it here in front of me, and I'm looking at the table of contents. 18 chapters, and I got to tell you, it is a who's who Mm -hmm. in quantitative methodology, talking about ethics in developing a general framework for methodologists of teaching, ethics in research design, ethics in data analysis, a huge one, ethics in communicating findings. I highly recommend this book, as does Greg. It really encapsulates what we'd like to talk about here. I have a very brief anecdote. I was talking to Abigail about the book. Just a couple nights ago, I was telling her that we were going to do this, and I wanted to touch base with her on a couple of things. She told me an anecdote about when she and Sonia were organizing the book. Almost to a person, the individuals that they contacted and asked to contribute to the book said some variation of no. Ethics don't apply to missing data. Ethics don't apply to multi-level modeling. Ethics don't apply to power and effect size. My work doesn't really relate to ethics. I don't know what I would have to say about this. And then they went to their thinking log. Everybody needs to have a thinking log. Mm -hmm. They went to their thinking log and they said, you know, actually, I have some things I'd like to share about this. I find that fascinating. I was thinking about the pitch meeting where Abigail and Sonia maybe are talking to a publisher saying, it's going to be the handbook of ethics in quantitative method. And to me, it sounds like a pamphlet at best, yeah, like a, a three-pager. And I love that each of the authors, as they reflected on it, because I think that's what happened to me as I went through the book. I started going through things going, yeah, that, that actually is an ethical issue. And it really made me think about things a little bit differently. And I hope we can convey a sense of that in the conversation to follow. I was director of our quant program for a dozen years. Dan Bauer is director now. And ethics is a big thing, right? Is you need to work it into your curriculum. You need to have this for various training grants or pre-doctoral awards or postdoctoral awards. And I will say, I was at the front of the line in thinking about, ah, oh, can we get a guest lecture that we can do in our lunch series so I can check this off for the year? Exactly. What I want to argue here is it's the day-to-day stuff. Abigail gave me a copy. I'm very honored by it. I will be completely honest. And Abigail, I hope you're not listening to this because you're busy and doing real work. I looked at it and I was like, seriously? An entire handbook on this? 500 pages. (laughs) This is one of my favorite books. Yeah. So let's pivot then into the day-to-day stuff. I don't want to make this a lecture. Mm Mm-hmm. I like having a little bit of definitional form. I am not going to say Merriam-Webster's defines ethics as, I know, I beat you (laughs) to the point. Dang it. There are all these terms, right? Many of which would be awesome band names, beneficence. (laughs) 
Ladies and gentlemen, Beneficent! At Cat's, <laughs> at Cat's Cradle, man. And you know who's opening for them? Non-malfeasance. Ooh, I I'm love their you. early stuff. Oh, yeah, their late stuff is a little derivative, but that's all right. So ethics. Ethics is a framework that guides us in moral behavior of knowing right from wrong and behaving in a way that's consistent with that. Now, here's something that I would also pitch is it's easy to talk about ethical behaviors being a binary. Oh, that person behaved unethically. I want to talk about a good old Qualtrics slider. Yeah. And not only a slider on ethical behavior, but a real-time one. It just moves up and down and up and down. And if mom tells me one more story about Aunt Dottie and her apple pie and how it's not (laughs) as good as it used to be, that that slider starts to move up a little bit when I pretend that Christy needs help with her homework. I want to lay one more thing on top of that. And that is that the ends of that continuum are not synonymous with good person, bad person. Mm. This is specifically about behaviors that people engage in. And I'm trying not to overlay too much value judgment in this conversation. I don't know how you feel about that. That's nice. I like that. Okay, good. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, I can admit to some things. (laughs) (laughs) I did get busted for shoplifting. No way. Well, busted is a loose term. I got home and I pulled a toy out of my pocket and my mom said, where did you get that? I said, I, the store. <laughs> so. <laughs> where do you think I got it? <laughs> yeah, duh. <laughs> so she made me call the manager of the store on the phone, apologize, go in and <sighs> apologize, return the toy. I am convinced it's still on my permanent record. I don't know where my permanent record, it's still on there. Just to clarify. I never got caught for shoplifting. (laughs) You are an ethical person. (laughs) Because I was better than you were. Yes, you were. I had a whole underground economy in junior high of bubble yum. I would acquire bubble yum through a supplier. You had some guy muling in (laughs) bubble yum. And I would sell bubble yum for 25 cents a piece and then have a pocket full of quarters to go play Asteroids and Defender at the arcade on the way home. This is spooky. I would take my lunch to school in junior high every day. I would sell almost all of my lunch and then I would go after school and I would play not Asteroids. I would play pinball for like an hour and a half or two hours on the money I made off of selling my beef jerky, my little three musketeers, the fun size things that aren't really fun size. It's spooky. Spooky, I tell you. Okay, we're, we're getting a little <laughs> off point here, and uh-huh. uncharacteristically. All right, how about if we think about just the loose architecture of studies as we go through them? Maybe think about some places where decisions come into play that might reflect opportunities to introduce ethical or unethical behavior. What I will say ahead of time is that we will touch upon only a fraction of these things. As we say things, no doubt you will be out there thinking, well, what about this? What about that? What if someone did this? What Tons of these things. I think we'll just hit a few that come to mind as we go along the way. One thing I told Abigail when we were chatting, I first came to her book because I was teaching a grad quantitative research methods course And I was going to do the mandatory one lecture on ethics. Mm -hmm. And I was going to pull a reading from her book and have a one-hour conversation so I could mark it off my to-do list. Mm -hmm. You could design an entire graduate-level class around this book and still not cover all the material that you should in quantitative methodology and ethical or moral behavior. Absolutely. We're going to talk for the next 30 or 40 minutes about this, where we could have a 16-week course. All right, entertain me. Yeah. Well, so think about that you're planning a study, right? You're going into a study. And I don't know, we've talked about lots of different examples, and I don't want to lock us into one because it would probably prevent us from talking about things. But just let's think about the planning of a study. What kinds of things go through your head? And this is the key that are opportunities for unethical behavior. I will start off that conversation by saying that I am a person who has biases. I am a person who has beliefs. 
I am a person who often goes into a study with hopes and dreams about the way that particular study will turn out. And my guess is, despite my best intentions, that those things might color the decisions that I make, might create opportunities for what could be classified as unethical behavior. If I'm sitting down with someone and we have to do a power analysis for the study, right, and we have to do some sort of sample size determination ahead of time, anybody who has had a conversation around sample size planning has gone through this particular dance where someone will say things like, well, but what if maybe maybe the effect is a little bigger than that? Maybe I don't need that level of power. And it's all pushing something toward, ultimately, I think often a sample size that someone has in mind, a goal, whether it's dictated by budget or whatever. And for me, that's just dripping with ethics. First of all, I don't prefer that our decisions are guided by getting through the gate at the funding agency as opposed to doing good science. And the conversations that I have with people around power analysis are almost always around what will get past the eyes, you know, at NIH and so forth. Hmm. And if you pull back and say, are we doing good science in this kind of planning? I think you have to look in the mirror and say, oftentimes, oftentimes, no. Our goal in the research, and I know it's very high and mighty for me to say things like this, but our goal in the research really is to understand a system better. And if we are going into that underpowered, if we are going into that without honest reflection on the things that we are going to try to study, then at some point we are wasting resources. We may be going into a study so underpowered as to fail to find things that are of critical importance. It doesn't matter what the context is. It can be therapeutic context, a medical context. If we're going into a study without having done this thought, then ultimately there are consequences for these kinds of things that undermine the science and possibly undermine the contribution to the broader public. In all the conversations we've had with some of our guests and talking with Samantha, in talking amongst ourselves and talking about power, I was advocating for emojis for power analysis <laughs> because I have frustrations with certain aspects of it. I don't think in spanning nearly 50 episodes in my mind did either of us ever use the word ethics with power. Mm -hmm. But to say, is having an underpowered study an ethical violation? Do we have an ethical obligation as a scientist to design a study in a way that is going to appropriately adjudicate the hypotheses that are under study? And to shrug and say, well, we have limited resources, or it's really hard to get children of alcoholics who are using drugs when they're young, and so naturally we're going to have a low power. Do you just say that's a limitation, or is it unethical to design a study that is not able to test the hypothesis at hand? You know, there are a lot of questions that once I frame them in a public health context, once I frame them in terms of human life, sometimes it helps me to see the ethics associated with things a little bit more clearly. I might have a harder time when it's something that I might just loosely refer to as a more just interesting academic study. But when I start saying things like, this is a vaccine that could save tens of thousands of lives in some part of the world, and we enter into that with insufficient power to be able to detect its effectiveness, does that become an ethical problem? I think the answer is yes. Yeah. And in Abigail's and Sonia's book is Scott Maxwell and Ken Kelly have a chapter on this very issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that we as a field are going to be better for embracing that this is an ethical issue and not just, oh, we got to get it past the funding agency. Or my dissertation advisor says I have to have at least 0.81 in the power. And if I can just tweak the numbers to get to 0.81, mm -hmm. then I'll be okay but that this is an issue of ethics just in the same way as informed consent or duplicity or any other thing is. It's just in our neck of the woods, it takes the form of power and effect size, but it's no different than any of these other characteristics of designing an ethical study. 
I agree. And with regard to design more broadly, there are all types of things that we do as we're planning a study, not just around power, but around treatment groups and control groups, for example, the use of a placebo. Should we use a placebo? Is a placebo really just a a straw person against which we're comparing something else? Should we have more a business as usual as our control? Should we have the best competing treatment out there to compare our thing against? So there are design issues as you go into this study that have to do with, you know, and again, this sounds very sweeping, but a greater societal good and the ethical obligation we have to conduct this study in such a way that has integrity and has value ultimately. You know, and that's a really important point, Greg, and one that's not on my scribbled yellow sticky, which is you don't have to be studying a vaccine where power is important. I don't care if you're studying the development of self-esteem in elementary school children, and you can shrug and say, come on, man, we're not landing a triple seven in a snowstorm here. We're not developing a COVID vaccine. We're just looking at self-esteem in kids and are there gender differences. This is not big ticket stuff. I completely disagree. This is the science. This is our science. This is the foundation of what we do. I think these things are as equally applicable to studying self-esteem in fifth graders as it is to a randomized clinical trial in developing a vaccine. I'm not saying the societal impact is the same, but I'm saying that the integrity of our science is the same. You know, I've sat on NIH grant panels. I've sat on NSF, IES, certainly. And one of the things that's always in the back of my mind is about the cost to people involved in the study, the benefits to society, obviously, but also what else these resources could be doing if not this. And I really want the investment in this scientific endeavor to be worth advancing that particular corner of science and also to be worth taking it away from something else. Because in the end, a lot of what we do is is all around resources. And I think there's an ethics around those resources. And I completely agree with that. I will never advocate against that. Mm -hmm. In my own personal topology, I take those almost as a given. And mine is more the contribution to our understanding in the field. Mm -hmm. If you have an underpowered study and say there are no gender differences in depression before and after puberty... And even if we don't enact policy on that, even though we wouldn't change a treatment intervention, it's just building our understanding almost in a more basic science kind of way. That, to me, is the real issue at hand. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not minimizing any of the other wasted resources. Are we taking things away from other more useful applications? Are we being respectful of our participants? I embrace all of that. But at the end of the day, if you have an underpowered study and claim there is not an effect, and it's because you have a poorly designed study that did not detect an effect, that's an ethical violation. I'm with you on that. Well, imagine that the planning of the study has been done thoughtfully, has been done ethically. Now we move into the gathering of data. I would imagine there are six ways to Sunday that someone could be unethical in this particular phase, whether they think about it or not. Mm -hmm. Are there any issues that pop up on your radar with regard to data gathering? In psychology, we pay, quite frankly, very little attention to sampling. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are people who are doing complex sampling designs and sampling weights and stratified sampling and all that. I don't mean to imply that at all. Our bread and butter in psychology over many, many years has been convenient samples. Sure. And then we make one of two arguments that we are studying universal processes that hold across all types of individuals. And so these different subgroups are less relevant here because we're after universal constants. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that even remotely. Second is more of uh, looking back and saying, well... If there's some kind of systematic selection process that pulls people into our convenience samples, we have measures of those characteristics. So maybe women are three times more likely than men, and maybe whites are two times more likely than blacks. 
if I use race and gender in my models, then that will in some meaningful way correct for those kinds of differences. That's a, a oversimplification of model-based inference. I think that it is an ethical issue to say, have we clearly defined our target population, mm -hmm. which I think we often do not do. And given that clear definition of our target population, do we have a representative sample of individual subjects from that, which I do not think we often do? And it becomes an ethical issue ultimately because I think we have an eye toward generalization and grand claims at the end. And when we start making those kinds of claims on the back end, they are only as good as what we've done on the front end. They're only as good as the representativeness of the population that we're actually interested in. And I think sometimes there's some retrofitting where someone gathers some data, you know, out of convenience, and they try to draw a bigger circle around that sample than there actually is so that at the end of the study, they can try to make broader generalizations. And I think that's not just bad science, but I think it borders on the unethical in the end when you are trying to generalize the results of your study to groups that are really not represented in your sample. That desire to have some kind of grand claim that people glom onto because you want that treatment to be good for all people, because you want that phenomenon about human behavior and attitudes to be something that's universal. Well, I'm sorry, just because you want it doesn't make it so, and poor sampling on the front end undermines the conclusions in the end. So to clarify, I am not claiming using a convenience sample is unethical. I'm not even remotely implying that. Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is the thoughtful identification of a target population and the representative sampling of individuals from that population needs to be done in an ethical way. That's my main point. I like it. Let's imagine in our mind's eye that we have given some instrument to our sample of individuals and we have our data in front of us and we have an N by P data file. Now, this applies to more listeners as well, because some people would say, well, I'm a data analyst. I don't design and collect data. I just work with the data that's in front of me. I'm going to argue that <laughs> these things become even more relevant if you have an N by P anonymized data file. Mm -hmm. We still have a huge ethical obligation to approach that in a proper way. I'm talking about day-to-day -day decisions and the analysis of your data file that are guided by a well-defined ethical principle. And I don't know how deep you want to go here because pretty much every analysis you do doesn't just have an opportunity for you to screw it up out of ignorance. It has an opportunity for you to do something maybe that, that is unethical, right? Where you are making decisions that are in service of a particular outcome that you are hoping for rather than doing the right thing. And I like to think about this in terms of, well, would you make that decision if you didn't know what the outcome was going to be, if you didn't have a dog in the fight, wait, do we say dog in the fight? If you, if you didn't have a horse in the race, if you didn't have, yeah, I don't know what the... Or horse in the fight. I would Ooh. so go see horse fighting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an episode in that. I don't want to drill down into the minutia. I picked okay. up Abigail's book while you were talking about horse fighting, and now that's all I can see. <laughs> Section four, ethics and data analysis. All right, listen to this. I'm only going to read the first author. There are co-authors to several of these. Listen to this as far as the New York Yankees in talking about ethics and data analysis. Sonia Sturba on sampling designs, Jeff Cumming in null hypothesis testing, Jack McCardle in factor analysis, Harvey Goldstein in multi-level modeling, Craig Enders in missing data, and Judea Pearl in causal inference. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh -huh. okay, so then how would you like to proceed within the analyses? Oh boy, I was kind of hoping you weren't going to ask me that. Let me throw one out then. Okay. I see quality of measurement and the decisions that we make around the measures as being an ethical issue. Discuss. I think it's one of the most important. Go back to Stevens. Measurement is the principled assignment of numbers to observations. You blow that, you're done. Mm -hmm. You got to get that right. I'm going to do a call out for Ed and AERA. I've got a couple of books in front of me. It was actually really nice. I went into my office last night 
My daughter is a springboard diver. She practices on campus. I didn't want to drive back home and then go back and pick her up. Went to my office. I have not been in there since March. Wow. And I actually sat in my reading chair and it was really pleasant. (laughs) But I wanted to grab a couple of books. And one is Standards. That's what it goes by colloquially. It is Standards for Educational and Psychological Testing. Mm -hmm. It is a joint project of AERA, American Educational Research Association, American Psychological Association, and National Council on Measurement and Education. I think it's a book everyone should have on their shelf. So I'm flipping through here. Again, let me skim down a table of contents. Validity, reliability, fairness, design, scoring, administration, Testing and assessment, selection, high stakes. I mean, this is everything you need to know about the proper use of testing in practice. And I could not recommend this book more strongly. Now, let me ask you to do something. Since you're holding the book in your hand, literally, can you frame what you are holding in your hand in terms of ethics? Going back to our earlier (laughs) Merriam-Webster definition... If we define morality as knowing right from wrong and ethics as a framework of organizing morality to guide proper decisions, I think that this is an outline of everything that we should think about as doing things correctly, not just technically correctly, but ethically mm-hmm. in the entire arc of, hey, Greg, I've got an idea for a scale to presenting empirical data supporting the validity and the reliability of what we've done. I think that this is kind of a lonely planet travel guide mm-hmm to the appropriate use of tests and measures in social science research. Yeah. So ultimately, the thing that you said, I think, is around Stevens. Once you're holding a score in your hand, there's so much about that score that really needs to be in place. How that score was arrived at, what factor analytic methods, for example, might have been used en route to validating that scale If you believe that that instrument and the score that it yields is something that can be used with different populations, then you better have examined invariance. If you are using an IRT kind of model and you say, well, I'm I'm really more of a 1PL kind of guy. Um, what, What do you mean you're a 1PL kind of guy? Are the assumptions that you're making about those other parameters reasonable? And if they are not, what are you baking into that score that could ultimately cause problems? We talk about scores, and you and I have mentioned this previously. We have talked about scores in the context of reliability and validity, but it's reliability for what? It is validity for what? So when you have these scores in your hand, are they reliable in the context of the purpose that you are using them for? Are they valid in the context of the purpose that you are using them for? Ultimately, an instrument isn't reliable or valid. It's what you are doing with those scores, what kind of inference you are making. I think there are a tremendous number of opportunities in here for your decisions to have ethical implications. We have to balance that with realism. Do you have to do multiple group across every possible subgroup, Mm -hmm. every age, every country of origin? Somewhere out there, we have to string barbed wire and say, inside the wire, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it well. Outside of the wire, I see future applications or expansions that are beyond the scope of the work here. I see that wire. What I think we're talking about is where do you string that barbed wire Mm -hmm. and know unambiguously what's inside the wire and what's outside the wire and making sure you're not making inferences about the universality of that numerical scoring rubric that you're overgeneralizing in a way that's unethical. Not just a limitation of future research will do well, but that you have a moral imperative to not draw generalizations to a part of that topology that you're not able to make an inference given your design and data and study. So my answer to your measurement question is yes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You know, there are other areas where I think about ethical behavior having direct relevance where you might not think so. For example, the treatment of missing data. 
everything that we do has certain assumptions associated with it. And when we wave our hands at those assumptions and, yeah, they're missing completely at random. Eh, I just did some list-wise deletion or eh, I just did pair-wise. All of these decisions that you make, they might be sloppy. They might be ill-informed, but they also have consequences for what you are doing. And when you have data, for example, that are missing at random, but not missing completely at random, when you make certain decisions about how to handle the missingness, then you, in fact, might be biasing the results that you have in a particular direction. And once you have done that, it alters your ability to make proper inferences from the analyses that you've done, proper generalizations from the analyses that you have done. And that ultimately comes down to an ethical issue. And Craig has a wonderful chapter on that in the book as Mm -hmm. well of exactly the issues that you're laying out. And you're right. You can't just say we ran a series of chi-squares and there does not appear to be systematic missing, so we're going to use listwise deletion to simplify our subsequent analyses. Mm -hmm. Again, what is one of our themes we keep coming back to? Is that a simplification or is that an ethical violation? Mm -hmm. When you say ethical violation, I think an alarm bell goes off if you think about ethics as that zero one. Wait a minute. That's an ethical violation by using listwise. But it's less alarming if you say, did your slider just go up a little bit? Mm -hmm. Because we know from 50 years of work that listwise deletion rarely, if ever, is appropriate. If you knowingly do that to simplify what you're doing, that doesn't make you a bad person. But I think your slider went up a little bit. Because we know there are better ways of handling that, and those better ways are readily available to you, and you have an ethical obligation to use that. You said the words, you know. You know that this exists. Mm. It has to do with what people do knowingly, what people do in an uninformed kind of way versus ethical violations. One of the things that the American Statistical Association actually says is an ethical responsibility of statisticians is to remain current. And that people who fail to remain current in statistical methods are actually contributing to a breach of their professional ethics. Because the more we learn about methods, the more we realize the limitations of what we are doing. And ultimately, they would argue that doing something out of a failure to understand what more modern and better alternatives are is in and of itself an ethical violation. Oh, that's really interesting. I have thought about that, but not as an ethical issue. Mm -hmm. I think I'm starting to see a theme out of this is asking yourself, is that an ethical issue or is that a data management question? Or is that a, oh, you prefer this approach over that approach, but then recasting is not staying current an Mm -hmm. ethical violation on the ethics slider. Mm -hmm. You didn't suddenly kill a hitchhiker It's just your slider is moving. Yeah, so the ASA has a committee on professional ethics, and they listed this as one of your responsibilities. And I thought that was very interesting. It reminded me of, I don't know if this rings a bell to you, but a long time ago when Steve Martin really focused on stand-up comedy, I don't know if you remember what he said, you have to tell a judge when you get in trouble. Let's say you're on trial for armed robbery. (laughs) You say to the judge, I forgot armed robbery was illegal. <laughs> I forgot listwise deletion was bad. Uh, that's what it makes me think of. But I, I actually like that once you engage in a particular profession, that you have some degree of obligation to either be current yourself or at least have in your sphere people who are current, who are helping you to make the best judgments possible, especially when those judgments can be consequential. So if you have a friend who's in the medical sciences, they're constantly doing continuing it, Mm -hmm. which is really good because if I go into my family doc, I would really rather not have a leech put into my (laughs) ear. Why would it be any different for us? We have to stay current. 
Mm-hmm. I like that as an ethical imperative that we be aware of ongoing advances in our field. There's a whole nother conversation of you can't possibly know everything there is to know about everything. How do you balance a realistic understanding of the literature and how you apply it? It's a very complicated domain, but you can't plead being uninformed. You can't play the Steve Martin, I forgot. <laughs> That we assume normality and my data are binary. That's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. Here's another one that I struggle with. Okay. Think of all the weirdo little things that we deal with in data analysis and methods that make good lectures, good examples. I'm going to off the top of my head tick some off and then add any if you have them. Suppression. Regression to the mean. Restriction of range. Ecological fallacy, Simpson's paradox, Lord's paradox, all of these things that make great examples in class, you should have these at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. We have an ethical responsibility to understand what those things are and how they manifest themselves in our data analysis so that we can protect against them in our drawing of inferences from our models and our data. I like that. I also like that you just gave me a number of things for our next pop quiz episode. Oh, um, <laughs> you know, w- the list that you just gave reminds me of a couple of things that I put in this category. Many of the studies that we do broadly, we royally, is targeted toward understanding an effect, a relation. The idea is that we think there is an answer that we are moving toward as opposed to something that has context. And something you and I talked about previously in the moderation episode, as well as in a number of other places, things differ as a function of other variables. There are knobs and dials that exist on the world that make the idea of a treatment effect really kind of silly, or an impact of a particular variable kind of silly. And one of the things that I think is disingenuous at the least when we're trying to design our studies, when we're trying to make inferences, is this goal that we think one number is going to summarize everything. And I think at some point, trying to summarize effects in terms of that single number, failing to take into account a context, ultimately becomes something that is an issue of ethics. And I see two related issues. Well, I guess one related issue, and I'll repeat one and take credit for it that you just stated, Mm -hmm. is that notion of context. I think it's critically important. And I think in the spirit of the conversation, you have an ethical obligation to place a number within a context. It's not just, well, future research will do well to consider. No, you have an ethical obligation to place that in a context. The second thing that I was thinking as you were talking is, I have a buddy of mine at Carolina in psychology, a wonderful guy, Pascal Sheeran. Mm -hmm. He's a social psychologist, insanely smart, does these crazy complicated meta-analyses. I asked him once at a talk, how does he view the results of a single study? And immediately he said, I see it as a data point for a future meta-analysis. I think there's an ethical imperative in viewing the results from a given study as the next contributing data point to moving on as a field. I like that point a lot, although I think there are many other things that we could talk about in the context of data analysis. Maybe we can use that as a segue into reporting, writing up, anything about closing out the study. I don't have any insights than any other listener would have, which Mm -hmm. is... Be truthful, be clear, justified decisions, convey to the reader your intermediate steps, don't gloss over things. I think you have an ethical obligation to communicate with the greatest degree of clarity possible each decision point, how you got to where you are, an Mm -hmm. honest reckoning of the limitations of the study, Mm -hmm. and not just future research will do well to whatever but saying, is there a limitation that meaningfully limits the generalizability of your finding in a way that you should articulate clearly to the reader? I think all of that is right on point. I'll tell you one little anecdote. I was working with a particular large research agency that shall not be named. 
and I was asked to do a number of pretty involved analyses for them, and in the end to write up what I found. It was for an internal document, so not for publication, but ultimately they wanted to do some things with it. So I wrote up my findings, and I submitted it to this agency, and the point person that I had within that agency kicked it back to me, and the response was, oh, we can't say that. So what do you mean we can't say that? If we make those conclusions, the funding agency will terminate their relationship with us. Is there a way for you to soften what you've said or maybe say things in a different language and all of that? And that was so eye-opening to me. And the answer was no, that those are the conclusions. I give them to you and thank you very much. But it's so interesting to experience these other people beholden to things And the idea that if I reach a particular conclusion with their data, that somehow all these other dominoes are going to fall for them. That was quite eye-opening. There is so much more I want to talk about. Yeah. We still haven't gotten to, can you have an unethical computer simulation? I think the answer is yes, and maybe we can save that for another episode to talk about. Yeah. Do you have some take-home points? Can we kind of start to dot some T's and cross some I's and say... All right, how can we wrap up here and then look toward maybe other episodes in the future? Well, a couple of things that come to mind. One is that we're always modeling things. We're modeling things for the community where we put our research. We're modeling things for the students that we're working with. We're modeling things for the newer faculty members who join us and and look to us for cues and how they conduct themselves in their own research. And I feel the weight of that. And I think that's a good thing. All of these issues for me and going through this wonderful book by Panter and Sturba, what it did is it sort of bumped it up in my consciousness. That's not to say if you duct taped me to a chair and shined a bright light in my face that I couldn't come up with some of these issues. But this has really made this be more of an active filter in the way I think about the things that I do. I really start to think more about the ethical components of these things. I kind of wish we had a Hippocratic oath, right? A quantitative Hippocratic oath to end this where all the listeners out there would say, I solemnly swear that it's not really that simplistic, but I really hope that folks out there maybe are doing the same thing. Maybe when they are at a decision point at anywhere in their study, that they ask themselves, how might this be an ethical issue? I think one of my takeaway points, reiterating something that came up a little bit earlier, is I out of hand dismiss the claim that ethics don't apply to quantitative methodology. If you're Mm -hmm. not collecting data or working with human subjects or blood samples or genetic arrays or whatever, that ethics doesn't apply I just dismiss that categorically. Not only does it apply, but as has become clear, I think, in our conversation about all of these aspects, it applies to every single thing that we do. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the equivalent of throwing water on a rock and it just seeps into every crack and crevice. Having a moral compass as we navigate our day-to-day life is an imperative in doing the best work that we possibly can, given the importance of the task that we've been charged with. I agree completely. This conversation has changed me in nice ways. It has changed the way I will talk about things with people. It has changed the way that I will discuss certain training elements of what we do. It's not a throwaway lecture. It's not a one-hour hey, everybody, watch this webinar and check the box. This is something that has tentacles throughout all the things that we do. And I really have appreciated the opportunity to to talk about this. Thank you. On that note, thanks, everybody. Wait, Uh, just a sec. What's that, Christy? You need... Okay, all right. I'll be there in a second, sweetie. Greg, I'm sorry. I got to (laughs) go. Whatever. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Hey, couponers. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they usually go for white noise to help them drift off to sleep. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, you can get crazy cool Quantitude merch just in time for the holidays on Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, and all kidding temporarily aside, this was our 50th episode. How cool is that? 
Now back to the kidding. Today's episode was sponsored by Reviewer 4. When three slaps in the face isn't quite enough, so the editor brings in a fourth person in the second round just to keep your self-esteem in check. And by the Kolmogorov Smirnov test, best enjoyed on the rocks with a twist of lime. And finally, by the communication platform Zoom, offering one dimension more than most statisticians' personalities actually require. This is most definitely not NPR. There's nothing like the open ocean to make you feel simultaneously infinitesimal and infinite. The air, the stars, the stars. Wait, Cassiopeia, Orion, Venus? Something is not right. We've changed course. Men, we've changed course. How can you tell? There's something wrong with Uranus. My what? The heavens. Never mind. We can't change course. I need to get home. We need to take control of the ship, gentlemen. Who's with me? Anyone? <sighs> gentlemen, they say that shared challenge and sacrifice sow the seeds of indelible brotherhood. This may not matter to you, but I have been away from home for a long time, endured many hardships, done questionable things. But two things I know. It's time to go home, and I cannot do it without you. And so I ask again, who is willing to share this challenge with me? Who is willing to risk sacrifice with me? Who is willing to form an indelible brotherhood with me? To home! Yeah.